Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of FSW Conversations, brought to you by Fashion Strategy Weekly, which looks to bring practical, strategic, and research-based insights to leaders in the fashion and luxury industries. I am Jessica Quillen, co-publisher of Fashion Strategy Weekly and co-founder of Luxury Strategy Agency, It's a Working Title. In our third edition of FSW Conversations, I'm talking to Louisa Lick, award-winning marketer, best-selling two-time author, podcaster, and founder of Leave Your Mark. She was also the original social media influencer as DKNY PR girl. Um, so just to start off with, Elisa, I would love for you just to introduce yourself. And, you know, you've had such an amazing career moving from life as a first fashion social media celebrity into forming your own LLC and becoming a marketer and brand strategy guru and much more than that. And I'm just really curious, how did your experience in fashion shape the work that you do now? Well, first of all, Jessica, I'm so excited to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. You know, I I think everything that I've done prior has led to this point. And I think at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller. And every part of my career has been through the lens of telling a story, whether it is, you know, Harper's Bazaar back in the day as an intern to moving on to Mary Claire to moving on to PR. You mentioned DKY PR Girl in your wonderful intro. and, And that certainly was storytelling a brand in a new way in social media. And, and now I'm really um, thinking about brand strategy, but from the perspective of luxury fashion, which is very specific. Very much so. And, you know, one of the things I'm interested in in your second book, just to kind of hone in on that, because I know that came out uh, quite recently. And, you know, I think it's just a really incredible resource. And one of the things in your second book uh, that you talk about is, you know, just really practical tips and kind of workbook like exercises for people to sort of you know, apply lessons from your experience, but also to kind of focus on building their own personal brand. And I'm really curious, just from your own experience, what was the inspiration for that second book and kind of building into that? And, you know, also how that specifically applies to people within fashion and luxury, looking to kind of shape their own identity within a very specific industry, as you say. Yes. So all of these things are interconnected. So as you know, my first book was called Leave Your Mark. Um, Leave Your Mark was really inspired by the DKYPR girl personality that sort of catapulted me into the public eye. It is like the devil wears Prada meets career advice. And as you know, for six years, I was this social media personality, almost two of which I was anonymous. So everything is fine and good while you are in your corporate role. You know, I was at Donna Karen. 17 years, part of LVMH, all the things, the title, the expense account, the connections, everything. And then I got approached to write a book, which was all great. But the thing that I speak about in Leave Your Mark, which I double down in, in the new book on brand, is the idea of not suffering from last name syndrome. And a lot of times when people work for a credible brand, they lean on the credibility of that brand to become their last name. So as you know, I was Elisa from DKNY, right? So what happens when you leave? So on brand, shape your narrative, share your vision, shift their perception is my new book. And it's all about personal branding and how to really make sure that you're building equity in your own name. Because that first day when I left on a Karen and I was like, okay, free person, now what? It was really scary. So I'm trying to help people understand that they need to do the work to shape their own narrative so that people understand the value that they add. 
No, I love that. And, you know, one of the things I love in your new book is that whole introductory section where you kind of take people through how you were sort of architecting your own sort of transition from your previous work as UKMYPR girl into sort of your new identity as your own brand and kind of mapping out sort of, you know, strengths and focuses on each side into to your little uh, Venn diagram and all of that. You know, I, and one question I had just in terms of, you know, kind of thinking about, um, you know, people kind of diagramming their own personal brand. How do people break themselves down to sort of those kind of core categories and kind of figure out, you know, where their sort of, you know, strengths and weaknesses lie and kind of where they want to kind of build those bridges between, you know, what they were doing before and what they're looking to do now? I mean, some people it's always like, a, you know, just a, a matter of listing, but I'm just wondering if, you know, for you, is it a matter of sort of architecting those clear cut goals first at a high level or, you know, starting with a laundry list of what you liked in your old job? Like, how do people get started in sort of starting to, you know, build that bridge from the old into the new? So I think to answer your question, the first thing I should say to set the stage is that to me, personal branding means that your name is dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're recommended for opportunities other people haven't heard of yet. A lot of people think of personal branding as like, being an influencer, becoming famous. I don't see it that way. I see it as having a clear sense of the story you want to tell about yourself and arming the people around you with that story. Now, a lot of times people think of personal branding as cringy because they're like, oh my God, that's bragging. Like, I don't want to talk about myself. It's super uncomfortable. A lot of people also equate it with having a social media presence. So one of the things that I did in on brand uh, very consciously is to bridge equally people who want to have a social media presence and people who are like, that's not for me, but I still want to have a strong personal brand in real life. So the first step in doing this is saying to yourself, what do you want to be known for in any circle? Because repu excuse me, because repetition is reputation. So when you answer that first question, which is a simple question, but also hard to answer, Sometimes you're like, well, I don't know. I, I do a couple things. I have a side hustle. I have a corporate job. I, I have causes that I support. So the first exercise is, is really the Venn diagram, which is, you know, a classic marketing um, tactic where you can visualize your different circles of what is important to you or what you think you relate to, and then try to find that middle center point where there's overlap. I think in general, when we think about personal branding, we're thinking about it. Yes, you can write it down, but more so you have to remember, and I have a lot of experts in on brand who, who speak to their specific strengths. Dory Clark is the communications expert, and she kind of says it best. No one is thinking about you. So if you're looking to get promoted or you're looking to start a business or you're looking to do something bold, make a pivot. If you don't do the work to shape that narrative and let people know what it is that you're trying to do, they're, they're not thinking about you. So a lot of people wait, you know, waiting around for someone to notice that you're good at what you do is not a strategy. No, no, definitely not. It's almost like acting for, asking for validation when you're, you know, kind of haven't really kind of gotten your name out there with everything else like that. And what, one of the things I liked about, you know, sort of how you were building out the idea of 
crafting your brand is the whole idea of crafting your own story. And I really loved how you um, talk about not bringing your whole self to work and controlling the narrative about your life. So like then controlling what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. Can you explain this a little further? Like how do people build rapport professionally with either oversharing or not, or being too aloof, but making sure that, you know, people are having the right conversations about that, about you when you're not in the room? So I think first and foremost at work, the goal should be to earn social capital with your peers and your external stakeholders. And what that means is, excuse me, making sure that you're doing great work, making sure that you're reliable, uh, people can count on you, they know that they can count on you in a pinch, and that you're consistent in the way that you're delivering in a timely fashion and also quality work, right? Also, doing favors for people at work, you know, recognizing maybe, you know, someone who's on a different team is working on a project. Maybe you're not that busy right now. And you say, hey, I'm a little light right now. Do you want some support on that? Being able to kind of like surprise and delight coworkers in that way goes a very, very long way. So that's the first part of it. The part of don't bring your whole self to work, which, by the way, when I wrote that line, I was like, people are going to get so angry that I'm saying this. But I really believe it's true because not every aspect of yourself is appropriate for work. So when we think about bringing yourself to work, that's not to say that you're not building authentic relationships. That's not to say that you're not being yourself. Of course you are. But you have to remember, what's the goal here? The goal is to be successful. The goal is to get more responsibility. The goal is to get promoted. You're not there just to like hang out. So everything you do at work should be supporting that North Star goal. And sometimes we lose ourselves, right, in conversations. And, and maybe, you know, we show up on a Zoom meeting and we're like, you know, this is just a visual identity example, but I do go over visual identity. Like a lot of people right now are showing up on Zoom, their camera's off, or maybe, you know, they look like they're like really not into it or they're not really showing up in the way that they should for a, a meeting. And those things matter. So how you're showing up matters. And I think we've lost a lot of that, especially post-pandemic. So this is just a reset to remind yourself that what you're bringing to work should be helping you progress in your career. Oh, no, that makes a lot of sense. And can actually, since you mentioned it, um, can you can you dive a little bit deeper into sort of the visual identity part? Because I feel like that's like the uncomfortable elephant in the room post-pandemic that people don't really want to talk about. And then I think there's so much, you know, especially from like just, uh, you know, work culture perspective, you know, so many people are still remote. Some people are returning into office. And I think there's just a lot of confusion over dress code and expectations, but also like what is professional mean these days? And and does it does it really actually affect how people, you know, think about you. I think how you dress and how you prepare yourself for any single meeting, whether in Zoom or in real life, tells the other party that you care about what you're doing. So if you're showing up to a Zoom meeting with a potential new client and you're wearing, you know, basically what could be conceived as like rolling out of bed in in, in pajamas, you're telling that person, you know what? This, I don't really feel the need to impress you. And I don't think really at the end of the day, anyone's ever gotten in trouble for looking polished and put together. And because so many people have slipped away from that mentality of like putting themselves together for work because they are at home, when you do, it goes even further. And it's such a benefit. And 
honestly, fashion is, is such a weapon of choice. If you want people to sort of see you a certain way, you know, throwing on a blazer or throwing on a shirt and, and properly, even if you were doing like a, a remote interview, like getting dressed for the part that you want to play actually changes your mindset. No, and I love that. And actually, you know, just to kind of carry over into my next question, one of the things I keep thinking about with visual identity is so how much of your sort of, you know, especially in fashion luxury of your visual identity as you sort of move over into sort of your social platforms and where your sort of self comes across in the content that you put out there in even non-work contexts there. And, you know, one of the things in your book that you talk about really specifically that spoke to me specifically because I'm a content strategist, I've spent, you know, almost 20 years just, you know, creating content strategies for enterprise brands and all of that um, on top of being a fashion editor. But one of the things you talk about is crafting, you know, content strategies for, for specific social platforms. And, you know, this idea of tailoring your content as part of your personal brand for the platforms you're on. And I keep thinking of the visual identity um, part of that. And, you know, how do you, how do you kind of advise people on that? Because I, I think, you know, people obviously like the personal expression part of social media, but, you know, you, you keep reading, you know, when you apply for jobs or you go to you know, meetings and people, people look you up online, right? And so that your, your kind of media presence is everywhere. And so how do people kind of take a step back and figure out if they're presenting the right identity and then what sort of identity they should present um, as part of that, that sort of, you know, channel by channel approach? Well, in the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned the mental gymnastics exercises in on-brand. And we go through a lot of those in on-brand to figure out what your brand guardrails are. And what that really means is where you have permission to play and where you should sit back. And understanding where those boundaries are keep you out of trouble. So when we're thinking about social media in general, no matter what platform you're on, I really have two rules. The first rule is if you wouldn't feel comfortable seeing your post as a full page ad in the New York Times, don't post it. The screenshot is more powerful than the delete button. And in On Brand, I wrote that the internet is written in a Sharpie. So I personally, before I post, I ask myself every single time, why am I sharing this? Why am I sharing this? What do I hope to get from this community by sharing this? So I think that mental filter of stopping yourself and thinking about also, who are your stakeholders? Are you looking to get clients? Is your boss following you? Are you looking to get investors? Like, are you looking to get promoted at work? Like, what are your goals right now? And is your social media helping you or hurting you? A lot of times people aren't thinking in terms of, how it's connected directly to success, but it is because you're right. It is exhibit B right after your resume and your LinkedIn profile. That is the first place people go. And you have to think to yourself, are people going to like what they see? So really doing a spring cleaning of your social media every quarter is a great idea for certain. Oh no, I love that. And, you know, how do you, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, look, I'm, 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 I have to ask this question because I'm a content strategist and I'm constantly telling brands when it comes to sort of, you know, optimizing your kind of brand content across channels, this whole idea that you don't need to be everywhere at once. And I'm just curious for your take on that approach to, to social media, because I think 
sometimes when people, you know, are out to sort of, you know, switch jobs or, you know, kind of take a new career direction, they automatically focus on, you know, obviously LinkedIn, because that's the business part to that. But like, I just wonder for at least building your personal brands, whether there are some platforms you feel work better than others and some you should like, you know, turn off or, or whatever. Yeah, you don't have to be everywhere. I think LinkedIn is the most important platform for any single professional. I think it's really, really important to be active on LinkedIn and to have like a very robust profile that you're not just drafting and forgetting about. A lot of people like make a LinkedIn profile and they forget about it. Constantly looking at your bio, constantly looking what your experience looks like, honors, awards, any affiliations, making sure that that is up to date is really um, essential. But the other thing that's really essential, and a lot of people make this mistake, in their LinkedIn headline, not the bio, but the headline, a lot of people just write their their job title and their company. And in on brand, I, I go through every platform specifically and how you should think about it if you want to be there. And one of the things that I think is very important about doing LinkedIn right is recognizing that the skills and experience that you gain are yours. It doesn't matter where you're doing that thing. So to me, your LinkedIn headline should speak to how you identify as a professional. So I'm a marketer, I'm an author, I'm a podcaster. I don't need to write my title at said company because that's my experience. And I think the more people lean on their own name with their own experience versus where they work, the more self-sufficient they will be. The other thing I want to say about being in different places at one time is social media success is one part the content strategy, but the larger part is the format. So a lot of times if you have a topic that you want to speak to, how you deliver that content is going to change based on where you're doing it. So for me, for Instagram, I do my morning videos, usually putting on my makeup, talking about whatever. So that might be my Instagram version. Maybe LinkedIn, I'm going to do a written out version of whatever that message was because that might perform better. Sometimes I might post a video. Sometimes I may do it written. Sometimes on X or threads, I might have like a one bullet point, uh, watered down version of that video. So you can't really paintbrush the same content across every single channel. You have to pay attention to what works. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and you know, coming back to my content strategy, the content type matters. And I think understanding what works platform by platform, you know, yeah. is, is is such a critical thing. And I don't think people kind of think of adapting their message even across platforms. And you, you always see po posts of people, for instance, you know, make this, you know, YouTube video, but then you can actually parcel it out into like, you know, eight different things and like take the same message and adapt it. Um, but it, it sometimes becomes difficult when you think about sort of having to change the, the sort of the way you're presenting the content, not just the message. So I, I love that sort of um, perspective on, on adapting your content there. Um, one, one statement you made in your book really stood out to me as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, when talking about opportunities, you're right. If someone opens the door for you, run through it. Can you explain a little bit about that further? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times, especially the younger generation, takes for granted that an introduction has been made. And I've had many instances where somebody might say, oh, Aliza, are you willing to have a conversation with said person? They're trying to, let's just say, break into fashion, or they're trying to build a company or whatever it is. Um, 
sorry, I just had this weird alert from Google. Um, they're trying to build a company or they're trying to pivot or whatever it is. And I'm like, yeah. And then that person just disappears. And I think that when you are the person who needs the support or the introduction or somebody is, you know, sponsoring you to meet someone that you wouldn't otherwise meet to help you progress in your career, run through that door. Don't ghost. And I think follow through is really, really important. And the other thing that's really important is closing the loop. So if I introduce you to someone and that's helpful to you, what you should be doing is coming back to me however many weeks later and saying, hey, Elisa, I just want to let you know that introduction led to X. Thank you for making it. So not just taking the intro, but closing the loop with the person who made it. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Um, and you know, the, the, just kind of following through on from that, and I'm just thinking of your, I have the pages of your book in my head. Um, you know, you talk about making introductions and kind of, you know, have some really great tips and on, um, you know, doing cold pitches and things like that. Um, but you also have an interesting section on, you know, sort of the sort of variations of, of ghosting. And, you know, sometimes people either, you know, don't know what to respond to you. They don't have time. They don't know how to tell you no. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, as sort of, I, I think on both sides of it, I, I don't think anyone ever intentionally ghosts someone, but if you're a person who's looking to, you know, I don't know, apply for a new job and, you know, you have situations where you interview and then it, the company goes to you, or if you're an entrepreneur looking to sort of build connections and, you know, people don't respond to either a cold email or they ghost you after having a first meeting, um, how do you adapt from that? And how do you kind of use that as a learning lesson to do something differently the next time or not be offended by that? So first of all, we're all inundated with way, way, way too much communication in every single medium. So I think first is presuming positive intent, presuming that the person didn't see your email, presuming that they're overwhelmed with their inbox, could have gone into spam. So always send a follow-up. Don't assume that because someone didn't respond, it's because they don't like you or they don't want to do that thing. So I think um, one of the best ways to follow up is to put the onus on the person. So if you have a meeting with someone and you follow up and the person doesn't respond, when you follow up again, instead of saying, hi, so-and-so, I'm just following up, at, pose it in terms of a question. Say, hi, Jessica, I'm just wondering if it makes sense for us to continue the conversation, which is a really different way of, of phrasing it because all of a sudden the person on the receiving side is like, wait, does it make sense? Or, okay, so it doesn't, it's not as desperate as like, hey, I'm just following up here. It's just a different way to spin it. Um, after the one time that you followed up, if you're still not hearing anything, then I usually move on. I don't, I don't chase people down, but I don't take it personally. And I don't consider the door closed. I think who else might be helpful in this area? And I think you have to try a lot of different avenues at the same time to get something to stick. No, that's fantastic. And actually, if you're doing a job search or you're, you know, an entrepreneur doing that, do you uh, recommend sort of like a taking a test and loan approach and, you know, tracking emails and trying to figure out kind of what works when it comes to approaches? Or, you know, do you prefer people to be sort of more organic and, and natural with that? I'm just always curious. 
Um, well, as my friend Lauren McGoodwin says, don't spray and pray your resume everywhere. Um, I think warm intros are the most powerful tool we have. If you see a job posting on LinkedIn, you are going to have to apply through the portal because that's the process. But figuring out who you know, who knows someone who can hand deliver your resume to a hiring manager is going to be way more effective. And having been you know, deeply on the side of the hiring. I mean, for every job I've ever posted for a client where I've been the hiring manager, minimally, I've gotten over a thousand resumes into this system. So I'm not going through a thousand resumes. So how are you going to stand out? The way you're going to stand out is if you have someone who can physically walk your resume in and say, hey, I heard you're hiring for this role. My friend of a friend knows this girl. Here's her resume. Like, however you can connect the dots back to the hiring manager is what people should do. Because unfortunately, those online application systems, they're just too populated. No, that's the, and that's very true. And, you know, I, I guess that comes to my sort of my last question for you, which is just, you know, when thinking about your personal brand, what is the sort of one thing you would advise people to focus on as sort of a, a place to start? The first thing is every single person already has some version of a personal brand. And that is the big mistake people make because they think, oh, that's not for me. You are literally making an impression within seven seconds. People are judging you constantly. They're judging how you speak. They're judging how you work. They're your work product. Everything that you think people aren't thinking about, they are. So how do you take control of that narrative to make sure that you're telling your story in the way that you want to. Because if you don't do that, people are going to make up their own version of your story. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your insights on everything. Um, and you know, I highly advise people uh, buy your book on Brand as well as listen to your podcast, Leave Your Mark, because um, they're both just um, amazing sources of inspiration, but also I think of really practical insights um, on sort of how to um, focus on building your brand, but also I think just in moving your career forward. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Awesome questions. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I think, you know, this is one of those things that seems really daunting, but I try to make on brand, as you know, like really simple and user friendly. And it is something you can chip away at it, you know, a little each day goes a long way. So thanks again for the discussion.